0: So here we are. Um, I joined the DEI committee this past spring uh, after attending a conversation and seeing that, well, there's some need for folks to discuss DEI principles and educate the chapter membership uh, a little bit more. And I was here to help. I'm a white guy, um, heterosexual, and don't really fit the mold of someone that people would expect being interested in this uh, topic. However, I am also disabled. Uh, and so when we started to have a conversation as a group about how I might uh, help out as well, I understand that place. I often see that. Uh, yeah, you know, things from a slightly different perspective. It doesn't appear on the Zoom call, but I have limited use of my left hand, and was never supposed to walk. And it was something where I was able to get a little bit of a glimmer into the f- difficulties that other people have, and especially through the lens of microaggressions, uh, seeing people pick up on my limp, stuff like that. Uh, so. We had been discussing, having a conversation about disability in the workplace, what that might look like. Case Sargent from HOK, who's wonderful and highly involved with the uh, neurodivergent and uh, the workplace and promoting that, uh, was someone I had seen speak before. I reached out to her, and return. Uh, she put me in touch with Ken and Brian, and it all came together. I had a separate conversation with Connie Van Ryn, who turns out used to be a former client of my firms, uh, has moved on since, Uh, but she is a big proponent for universal design. uh, And I thought, what a better way to do an intro and start Building the conversation, than the principles of universal design. Kimberly uh, Dowell is much uh, is going to present today on how we can start incorporating those more into helping end users. Where Brian Collins from Microsoft, and he's done some fantastic work. I, he sent me a bio and my jaw just kind of dropped that and so i'm gonna go ahead and read that real quick for everybody before i uh, turn it over for him to be able to present unfortunately we're waiting for liz archer but hopefully she'll join soon uh i know she has some great news for the new jersey chapter hopefully I'm here. some folks you're here great yep. okay so let me read brian's bio And then I want to, sorry, I'm ad-libbing here, if you couldn't tell. So let me do this. Tani, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself Mm -hmm. and how you were related through the Westchester and Connecticut chapter, as well as New York, and then we'll pass over to Liz Archer.
1: Great. Sure. Hi, welcome everyone. Uh, Connie Van Ryn here and um, really appreciate the partnership on this important topic. Um, I'm I'm on the board for the Connecticut Westchester chapter and we, um, over this past year, recently launched a a DEI&B team in early 2021 and we really are looking forward to building and collaborating with others to build progress in this meaningful area. Um, and driving measurable change. So um, I'm also on the SPP in the New York City um, chapter. Um, I've been on that committee for a while. And um, actually last year we did an overview, but there was a request that we we dig a little deeper and really understand how does, you know, universal design get applied. And and we did not touch on neurodiversity. So I think those are really important aspects that I understand we're going to be talking about. Um, And... Again, just a big proponent. Um, I was a big advocate for this when I was at PepsiCo. And um, anytime you have the ability to understand um, walking in someone else's shoes, so to speak, um, the reality is it helps everyone. That's why it's called universal design. So thank you.
0: Yeah. I, I know when we spoke first spoke, Connie, uh, we had a great conversation about uh the sidewalk effect uh sidewalk cut effect, and i'm not sure if any of you are familiar with it but uh by putting cuts into sidewalks to allow for people with wheelchairs to access the sidewalks it has untold benefits for many other people including those that need to deliver packages um, and people that are blind and it really does a lot of good uh, for the larger populace and not just the intended person that it's trying to accommodate for. Um, and it's really interesting stuff. I Hopefully you'll look up sidewalk cuts after the call. I don't think we're gonna be talking too much about them here. Uh, and then of course, Liz Archer, who I run into everywhere, uh, helps that we both transverse the Hudson River on a near daily basis. Uh, covering New Jersey and New York, and she is part of the New Jersey Cornette, uh DEI committee, just newly established.
2: Yes, thank you, Chris. Um, yeah, I mean, we we formally haven't quite kicked it off. It'll happen in 2022, but we have been looking at uh, DEI for a while now. Um, we have a great women's group, and they sponsor our clinic at our golf outing for the past, I'd say, four years, which is very a very inclusive golfing uh, um, initiative, um, which just opens things up for people who weren't raised in a golfing culture with access to country clubs and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, we've been doing, we've been thinking, we've been talking, and uh, the executive committee finally decided they would uh, focus on. Um, we will be holding some events. Uh, we are going to look into hiring a, a diversity consultant um, to set our strategy for the next two years, as I know several other uh, Cornet chapters have done. And um, a big push this year will be outreach, um, c- partnering with our university outreach um, initiative with the Young Leader Committee and um, promoting the CRE profession to diverse students. Um, as well as reaching out to the younger crowd, like say in the boys and girls groups or YMCA, um, and just sharing the good news about CERE as a career path to people who might not know about it and to a more diverse audience. So um, maybe sponsoring an internship or something like that through some of the REAP programs, or um, we're just, open to different opportunities, but really it's, for us, it's about outreach um, meetings and setting our strategy for 2022 and beyond.
0: That's fantastic. I look forward to it. I, I interlope with the New Jersey chapter since my factory's uh, based out of there. Although we don't do enough work in New Jersey, I am trying to change that, but, No, I get to read Brian Collins' bio, and hopefully everyone agrees that uh, we're in for a treat here. But he's based in Redmond, Washington, uh, responsible for Microsoft real estate and strategic planning, change management, and accessibility initiatives across companies, 14 million square feet of corporate headquarters and real estate. In addition, Brian leads Microsoft supported employment program. Brian joined Microsoft in 1996 as the facilities manager for the Dublin campus and his previous roles with Microsoft he was responsible for facility management and the Europe, Middle East and Africa where he coordinated facilities for over 160 locations, 50 and 50 countries. Brian also led the global workplace strategies group defining and driving the Workplace Advantage program, including workplace research, knowledge management, change management, project consulting across Microsoft's global portfolio. In 2019, Brian testified at the U.S. Commission for Civil Rights in Washington, D.C., on the abolition of sub minimum wage for people with disabilities. As he continues to be an ally for people with disabilities. So, with that, I turn the floor over to you, Brian. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I
3: will mute myself now. Thank you, Chris. I, hope you all- I, I appreciate that introduction. Uh, and it's uh, great to be uh, with my friends in New York. Uh, so, uh, my name is Brian Collins, and at Microsoft, to be more inclusive, We usually start our presentations with a visual description, uh, which allows a person who's blind to make a mental picture of what I look like. So if we do have anybody who's blind on the call, I am a white man, I'm in my late 40s. I have gray and uh, dark hair, gets grayer every day, unfortunately. Uh, I am wearing glasses and a polo shirt, a dark polo shirt. And my background here behind me is uh, one of the Microsoft Office atrium buildings that we have. So at the Microsoft headquarters in Redmond, we have approximately 60,000 employees, vendors, and visitors coming to our office every day. Essentially, it is a small city. And uh, as you are probably all aware, the role of the corporate real estate team is to build and maintain work environments that really allow productivity uh, among our workforce but that means the entire workforce. So our goal is to deliver deliver spaces, services, and technologies that empower our employees across the spectrum of disability and create environments that empower us all thanks to that promise of universal and inclusive design. Um, When I think back to our journey, uh, it was very much a mindset of Tick the box in compliance and I think most companies do or will comply with accessibility legislation or code. And uh, that in the US, as we all know, is the ADA. Uh, If you're in the UK, for example, that might be the uh, UK Equality Act, but the ADA is over 30 years old, uh, and it's arguably a low bar, so we certainly know uh, we can go much Uh, much more beyond uh, that that, uh, in terms of creating the best places and spaces to work. But at Microsoft, a a transformation in the company culture has challenged us to reach a higher uh, degree in the areas of inclusivity and accessibility. In fact, inclusion lies at the heart of our mission statement to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. So why do we do this? Well, there are 1.3 billion people on the planet with disabilities. And for most of the 20th century, people define disability as the result of an individual's condition. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and the problem was with the person. Today, we know that disability happens at the point of interaction between a person and their environment, whether it's physical, cognitive, or social exclusion being the result of a mismatch between what the person wants to achieve and the environment that does not support them. So we believe that people uh, with disabilities are actually a strength to our company and a talent pool that adds not just diversity but expertise and experiences that make our products, our services, and our culture much much better. Uh, employment of people with disabilities is essentially the right thing to do. But there's some really good business reasons for doing it. It's, it is good for the bottom line. So three big stats to, uh, to recall and remember. Uh, according to the World Bank and the Global Economics Disability Report, people with disabilities have a combined spending power of $8 trillion. Research at the Center of Talent Innovation found that 75% of people with disabilities in the US have ideas that would drive value for their company compared to 61% of employees without disabilities. And finally, research by the World Economic Forum shows that companies that are inclusive of people with disabilities are on average twice as likely to have higher shareholder return than their peers, 28% higher revenue and 30% higher profit margins. So if that's not a good reason folks uh, to employ people with disabilities, uh, I don't know what is. Um, In April, Microsoft launched a five-year initiative to help close the the disability divide or the gap between the resources and opportunities available to those with disabilities and, and, and those without. And that means uh, creating technologies, software hardware that's accessible to people, um, whether that's physical, neurological. And we know that increasing the percentage of the Microsoft workforce that are providing that guidance, that expertise, uh, job skills, et cetera, is key. So we in the corporate real estate group have a continued role to play in that. So how how do we go about doing that? Well, um, we have this idea uh, and there's a great statement that I think uh, actually pertains to all categories of diversity, nothing about us without us. Uh, So to create the most uh, accessible spaces on the planet, uh, we want to include accessibility from the outset. And that means including people with. Disabilities in the process. Uh, Accessibility uh, then has got to be much earlier in the development cycle. You've got to bring the lived experience of those people with disabilities right from the get go, because as I mentioned earlier, uh, the ADA might not be enough. But if you capture it there at the beginning, then accessibility doesn't become something that you're fixing. Uh, It's not something that you're trying to remediate. You're not in that remediation mode. It should always be part of your design. And for the corporate real estate group, we have three areas that we consider. The physical environment, the services that we provide, and uh, we're developing apps uh, for our employees to to use. So how how are we doing that? Uh, Our journey, I guess, really started with our ERGs, uh, our employee resource groups. Uh, we found that across Microsoft, they have become a great resource of learning for us. And um, one, le- uh, one of the biggest learnings we've had with engaging that community is to go in listening. I think at the beginning, we had a mindset of uh, talking, um, us doing too much talking, us Um, explaining why we didn't do things in in the past. Oh, ADA says this, blah, blah, blah. We checked the box, blah, blah, blah. But if we actually step back and listen to that disconnect that people have had between the physical environment and their experiences, we have an opportunity to fix it. So secondly, we've actually hired, and Lizzie, I guess, touched on this a little bit as well. We've hired the experts. Uh, We have companies that are disability owned and have those lived experiences that can come in and help us. And they help us with uh, things like our design guidelines, design review, we've created a handbook and scorecard. And uh, and that certainly not only uh, brings that lived experience into us, but we pay people for that uh, that expertise as well. Um, Our journey uh, then have uh, has really it, it, what we've learned I guess is that many of the accessibility features are not high cost items but if you bring them in at the beginning uh, they're free essentially. and um, and I'm sure uh, Kimberly will talk about some of those features in, in her presentation. A uh, couple of things then to, just to maybe remember uh, as well. Uh, certainly, when you think about development of apps and uh, communication on the web, whether it's Chrome or Edge, uh, the, uh, the, uh, you can run the Accessibility Insights tool um, on, uh, from the WCAG, that's the Web Content Content Accessibility Guidelines. Uh, I, if you have awareness and a mindset that accessibility is part of your development, uh, that in itself is super super helpful um, having the right training and language helps we don't talk at least at microsoft we don't talk about people with special abilities or diverse abilities or different ab- abilities it's disability people with disabilities are proud of their identity and uh, Chris, you know, thank you for sharing your, uh, your background and, and where you uh, have a disability and where you've got that disconnect with the built environment. Uh, so people with disabilities come, uh, once they come to see that they're not, that they're going to be supported and their disability is not going to be seen as a negative, that's really going to be a strength. We also use people first language, so we talk about people who are blind, a person with low vision, a person who's deaf, rather than identifying a person by the disability itself. And uh, finally, then, we we do a lot uh, in our communications, and there's a lot of tools that are are there available for us all to use. Uh, A quick one that I think a lot of people forget is using alt text for images, whether it's on emails, PowerPoints, or even on our social media. Again, uh, what that means is when you post a a photo or a picture, you have the uh, alternative description uh, in there to help a person who's blind to do that. So with that, uh, I guess we can hand it over to Kimberly and she's gonna have some great examples of uh, how to do inclusive design. And uh, I think we're coming back then for questions.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. I really do appreciate it. And I, I'm not sure if everyone was in when you said it earlier, but definitely talk an hour. I think you probably talk a full week, but I'm glad to see you got some water to back you up on. It, this conversation is unending. Um, and I'm sorry, I had to actually, <laughs> I forgot to lock the door to my showroom and someone walked in. So <laughs> uh, hopefully I didn't cause too much of a disturbance. but. Yeah, let's move on to Kimberly Dowdell. And she has a presentation on the seven principles of the universal design. Um, I do have a short bio for her as well, uh, because I don't don't want to think that Brian's the only one here uh, who is quite impressive. We have two fantastic speakers and she's the co-chair of HOK's Diversity Advisory Council. Uh, she's also a past president of NOMA, the National Organization of Minority Architects. And she's in Detroit today, but she's Chicago based. So, you know, we've got the, both coasts and the middle of the country covered right now, helping out the tri-state area. So I really appreciate her coming on and having a presentation for us. And then I really do hope that folks pose some questions, I would love to have a great discussion. We do have until 1.30 today, which we're uh, about an hour from right now. Uh, Obviously, we'll give back time if people have to run early, but uh, I would love to continue this conversation after the presentation, so please stick around. And with that, Kim, please take the floor all
4: right chris thank you so much for the introduction and i'm also a former new yorker i was a cornet new york member um, a few a few years ago maybe a decade ago now but it's good to be back and to see some familiar faces and names on the call so thanks again um, so what's that chris
0: <laughs> no i was just saying before my time but, right but
4: yeah so, uh, so it's good to be with you all. Um, I guess I'll follow and Brian, take, take Brian's lead for those who are not able to see. I am a black woman in my uh, late 30s, um, short haircut, uh, wearing a gray jacket. So there we've kind of evened it out there. Thank you, Brian. Um, and so I wanted to actually start by talking about uh, my role on the Diversity Advisory Council uh, that Chris mentioned for HOK Firmwide. Uh, It's me and two other co-chairs, and essentially our mission is to create a sense of belonging for everyone at HOK. And so yes, that that deals with race and gender, but it also deals with disability. And so I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. I I don't think we talk about this particular topic enough. Um, So one of my very first um, design projects out of architecture school very early in my career when I was living in Washington, DC, was actually uh, a a dormitory for deaf students at Gallaudet And there, I had this incredible opportunity to learn about deaf ways of being, and you know, really interacting with the students and faculty and staff and administrators to understand the special needs of the deaf the deaf community. And I think that uh, the lessons learned there, I think, definitely translate into uh, the you know the principles of, of universal design that I'm going to present in just a few moments. So I'm going to share my screen, um, and I, I won't take credit for this. This has been around for a while, so I'll give credit to the proper authors, but. Let me just uh, get my screen fired up here one moment. And then I'll I'll run through this pretty quickly, but I definitely would like to to have more of a discussion with the group if if everyone is good with that. Uh, So let me share full screen. Can everyone see my screen in full screen mode? Yes, okay, great. So I'll start by giving that credit that I mentioned. The seven principles of universal design were developed in 1997. By a working group of architects, product designers, engineers, and environmental design researchers, led by the late Ronald Mace, a design pioneer who's internationally uh, who's also an internationally recognized architect uh, at the North Carolina State University. So I'm going to go through the, the seven principles again pretty quickly, animate them with uh, with just a, a couple of anecdotes, and then really open the discussion to talk about what we as a community uh, can can do to, to foster greater really, again, a greater sense of belonging. And one other um, thought that I'll share before I jump into each of these individually, I was actually talking with one of my, um, actually we were doing a presentation for the the NOMA conference, uh, myself and my two co-chairs for the HOK Diversity Advisory Council. And one of our, um, one of my co-chairs, Shiva Mendez, she she shared something I thought was really profound. Uh, I think most of you are familiar with the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, I've, I've heard that since I was a little kid and I think it's a great idea. Right. Um, but she, she actually introduced, and this, this is something I had not heard before. And this is like a couple of weeks ago, the platinum rule, do unto others as they, as they need essentially. So, you know, figuring out what a someone's specific need is, because maybe you don't need what someone else needs. And so they sent to which you can provide a, a service to help people um, you know, meet their unique needs, I think is kind of at the crux of what we're talking about today. So, uh, so for those who had not heard of the platinum rule, I just want to share that for your future use. So principle one, equitable use. Uh, basically it's about ensuring that the design is useful and marketable to people with diverse abilities. Uh, and so an example of this actually comes from my experience with Gallaudet University. I remember the students talking about um, you know, especially when it comes to uh, to access um, via, you know, via, via wheelchair, if you're using a ramp, it doesn't make sense to have a ramp that, you know, that sort of creates um, almost like a second-class citizen setup where someone in a wheelchair has to go through this very narrow ramp all by themselves, and then their, you know, their their friend or partner or whoever is walking with them or um, traveling with them has to walk up a separate set of stairs. So the suggestion for a particular design move that, uh, you know, that we were contemplating was about making the ramps really generous so that people can both walk and take, you know, a wheelchair at the same time. So that's that's an example of equitable use. And just really thinking about, um, you know, the best way to, to create equity within um, the, the use of space. So that's that's an example of, of equitable use principle one. Um, but you can take this in a lot of directions and, and maybe there are some stories that you'd want to share uh, later that point to uh, a good example of, of equitable use. Number two, principle two, is flexibility of use. You know, really indicating that the design accommodates a wide range of individual preferences and abilities. And I, I think that that, um, you know, this can be taken in a lot of different directions, but in the context of, um, of the workplace, I, I think about HOKs. Uh, neurodiversity work, which I'll actually share uh, more info about later. We actually have um, a, a good amount of uh, research that that we have um, been presenting. Uh, in fact, we've, uh, you know, had a lot of exposure lately, just getting into the, the dynamics of, of a neurodiverse workforce and and how, you know, it's increasingly becoming, you know, part of, um, you know, part of the workplace and how do we, as designers and, and real estate professionals and, and owners, you know, figure out the best ways to accommodate all of our staff. Again, going back to that, creating a greater sense of belonging. So flexibility helps to facilitate that greater sense of belonging for a wider variety of people. Principle three, simple and intuitive use. I mean, life is hard as it is. Like you, you wanna make sure that the buildings that you design and the spaces that you, uh, that you create are actually really, really easy to use. So it's about the use of design being easy to, under, to understand, regardless of the user's experience, knowledge, language skills, or, or current concentration level. And for any of you who've uh, traveled abroad and, and been to a country uh, that you know, doesn't, um, you know, that, that's not your native language, it can be very confusing to navigate you know, public spaces without you know, proper signage. So that's another example of, of making spaces uh, more simple and intuitive to use. Principle four, perceptible information. So this is really about the design, communicating necessary information to the user, regardless of ambient conditions or the user's sensory ability. So, so again, um, you know, creating a, an environment where someone can perceive what's happening around them without um, a great amount of effort. Um, principle five is about tolerance for error. You know, we're all humans, we all make mistakes. And I, I think that it's important that, um, you know, the the design, well, I don't think this is, and I don't, it's not just me who thinks this, this is, you know, part of the principle. Of, it's important that the design minimizes hazards and the adverse consequences of accidental or unintended action. So, you, you know, you really have to create, um, you know, buffer zones and, and spaces where, you know, people, um, you know, might might come close to the, the edge of something very valuable. So for example, um, in an art museum, you know, there's there's generally like a, an area that uh, you cannot, uh, Access because it's, it's very close to valuable pieces of art. I mean, that's one small example of, you know, really giving people a bit of a buffer zone so that they don't uh, injure themselves or, or damage artwork or, um, you know, again, there, there are other examples of that, but um, tolerance for error is, is important and that's principle five. Principle six is uh, low physical effort. Um, and, and actually, I'll, I'll give uh, Connie credit for this. Um, we were just talking before most people joined the call, and she talked about how, uh, you know, if we're if we're fortunate, we'll all make it to an advanced age, and we'll all really, you know, have to um, to look at things in a, in a different way, um, you know, when it comes to uh, our our strength of our, you know, our muscles and bones, and um, you know, as we advance in age, it's it's important that we're able to to navigate our spaces uh, effectively, and so. physical effort um, is really about the you know the design being able to be used efficiently and comfortably uh, with with a minimum of fatigue Um, and so that's that's one way to think about it just think about your future self Um, you know one example of that is um, door hardware Uh, particularly in in, um, buildings or maybe senior um, residences uh, door hardware that actually allows people to push down on it versus having to grab the, the, the door handle and turn it because oftentimes arthritis and, and other um, conditions with, you know, the hands or bones make it harder. And so actually having the ability to just push down more easily is an example of uh, lower physical effort. And the final principle is uh, size and space for approach and use. And this is really about creating the appropriate, um, you know, size and spaces for approach, reach, manipulation and use uh, regardless of the user's body size, posture or mobility. And, you know, this is just essentially it's about being thoughtful. Um, You know, if you were to navigate a space, uh, what are some of the, the pinch points? What are some of the areas that would be uncomfortable for you? And so then put yourself aside and think about the wider range of people who might engage with the space. And so thinking about them again, going back to that platinum rule um, treat others as they need to be treated. And so uh, thinking about principle seven, I think embodies that pretty well. So those are the slides and you know, I'm, I'm happy to to kind of talk more about um, you know what what this all means from a design perspective, but I, you know, I'd love for us to have a more dynamic discussion bringing Brian back into the conversation about how how maybe this applies to to his work, well, how it definitely applies to his work at Microsoft and and would certainly want to hear from all of you. So I will stop sharing and go back to, uh, the kind of face-to-face scenario.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great idea. Um, I, I, so many ideas are just generating in my head. Going back to the idea of the platinum rule, um, my mom always implemented the platinum rule. I needed a lot of help and had a lot of appointments as a child. I have an older sister and sometimes she felt like she was getting less attention. And it was, I'm not giving you less attention. I'm giving the amount of attention you each need. And she didn't call it the platinum rule, but it's really, uh, my mom's wiser than I realized. So that's fantastic uh, to know. I'll have to share what that heard on Thanksgiving.
3: Uh, and okay.
0: Yeah. What I would love to do, uh, if we are going to have this sort of open up, if people are comfortable, uh, turn your cameras on. Uh, Let's try to stay unmuted if you're you're not asked to speak. But if you have questions, please. Um, We spoke uh, with someone recently who was interested in getting involved with the DEI committee about the fact that he's deaf and has trouble on calls, not being able to see people's faces. Um, I didn't take Brian's advice earlier. I will describe for any of you that are blind on the call that I am a mid thirties, brown hair, brown beard, well, ginger beard, let's face it, uh, wearing a purple checked shirt. Um, And I really appreciate all of you being here and hopefully we can start a great conversation.
3: Uh, I'll jump in, if, if I may, Chris, while maybe people are getting their questions into the chat. Uh, I, I love the, the seven principles that, that Kimberly showed, and, and she's put the um, link to the neurodiverse workplace. And I can tell you, um, I point people to that website, at HOK, are far and above uh, everybody else in, in this space, literally. So uh, kudos to HOK and the team on their work in that space. And yeah, uh, tons of information there. And, and what I also appreciate is they've made a lot of this information free. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, again, you know that getting that information is super helpful. But I, I love the idea of the, the, the ramp and, and the, uh, the equity. Make the ramp wider for a person who's walking and a person who's uh, in a wheelchair. But I, take that one step further. Um, how about two wheelchairs uh, side by side? So uh, wheelchairs don't um, have to be front to toe. So, so then you got two people side by side in the wheelchair. And you've got to have room for somebody coming the other way. So that, that space is growing, but but it, it, we, we've got to invest that in, in that space to make it right. Uh, I love the idea as well of the impacts of us aging. And, uh, you know, the guy here with glasses who, you know, can't see a thing without glasses. Uh, how many of us have been in a, a restaurant looking at a menu or looking at directional signage and um, it, it, that the font size is, too small, Uh, the contrast ratio between the the writing um, and the background is is not great. So there's just so many things that we can do if we take those ideas and concepts and really think about them. Um, And then I'll just give one more example of the the idea of design for the few and impact the many. Um, At Microsoft, uh, we had a plan to update and change out the uh, ADA push-button automatic door openers, you know, the, the big button that you walk up to and you've got to press it and it goes good luck and you, you, the door opens. Well, we actually found one that was hands-free, so uh, you essentially got in front of the sensor and the door opened. Um, Our plan was to install those in every door, uh, main entrance and lobby entrance in Microsoft uh, over the next three years, but lo and behold, um, 18 months ago, COVID hit and people don't like to touch doors and door handles and buttons and so on. So we were able to accelerate the installation. Of uh, those door openers uh, to help everybody avoid touching um, the door handle and the doors. Just a small example of that again. uh, Designed for the few, impact the many.
1: Thanks for sharing that, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to Chris. I was just going to jump in and say that at at PepsiCo, similar after the SARS virus, we actually in the bathrooms um, for the most part put in badge swipe openers so that after you use the restroom, you don't have to touch anything because then your hands are, you know, clean and you just, it reads it and the doors would open. And that was brilliant, you know, for things during the pandemic because the more hands-free, as Brian just said, the better it is for everyone. And it also makes it just much more accessible and that's you know carrying trays of food whatever you're doing it's it, it really is universally supportive of people
0: yeah it, it's one of those things where uh, when my grandmother broke her hip we installed a chair lift system to so she could access the second floor where her bedroom is um, and come to last December when I ended up breaking my right foot down to one good limb essentially. Um, and it was very helpful that I didn't have to climb two flights of stairs, uh, to access my bedroom. So, uh, again, you never know when uh, or the circumstances that those small little changes, same thing with swapping out the hardware from, uh, turn knobs to push down levers. Um, very helpful. Uh, I can now do it with my left hand opposed to having to put down the bags of groceries to enter the house and stuff like that. So small little changes go a long way. Um, and I think that's my, I hope everyone takes away from this would be, you're not going to get it all, but make small changes and they really do add up and might not be immediate, but they'll, they'll be seen. Uh, so please, uh, Kimberly, if you'd like to add while some other folks uh, come up with some questions or comments.
4: Well, actually I actually have a question for Brian, if you, if you don't mind. So, you know, I, I talked about flexibility in use and use and the example of, uh, or actually equitable, equitable use and also flexibility, but um, allowing for those, those two wheelchairs to go up the ramp at the same time with, you know, people maybe coming down on the other side. So that obviously has space implications. So um, from your perspective, uh, I guess, from more of the the real estate side of things, like how, how do you advocate for that additional space, that additional, you know, sort of investment that's required to facilitate greater equity and flexibility?
3: Yeah, I I think it's just got to be in the mindset uh, right from the beginning that things like that are not negotiable. I, I think we've come a long way with sustainability, for example, in the built environment, and we've got components in there that are now um, uh, non-negotiable uh, when we think about uh, making our buildings green or going to carbon net neutral. Um, in similar ways, you've got to think about that with uh, uh, accessible, accessible features. And again, if they're designed in from the beginning, there, there usually is no cost. Um, we've certainly taken the idea that um, in our own buildings and new, new construction, uh, all these things are a given. Um, but in leased spaces or existing spaces there are things that uh, we will compromise a little bit on uh, but not to the extent that people are, are excluded um, but we have a roadmap uh, over a number of years to go and get to the highest microsoft design standard that we have uh, it is a journey but we are flexible in accelerating some features in particular buildings where they're required in a shorter time. Um, The the idea of making accommodations uh, for for folks, and um, and, and we can do that, Um, I'll I'll get a a great video that we've done um, uh, with uh, John Porter, one of our employees, I'll put it in the chat for people to look at maybe after. And um, that that's an area where we've just partnered with uh, an individual with um, a mobile uh, disability and we've been able to take those learnings and put it into the next generation of elevators that are going into Microsoft. Um, but we we hold budget for those accommodations. Um, people in the FM world you know talk about oh, I don't have money for accommodations, you know blah. well, one uh they're not usually that expensive um, if you work with the person who has the disability because believe me uh they've they have the life hacks of getting uh, around the issue and fixing the problem but two i also see them like what happens with a, a a maintenance repair you know somebody uh dings a wall or breaks a glass where do fm and building managers get the budget to make those corrections um you know we we, we find a way but um by engaging those individuals that uh, that will help with the hack i guarantee it
4: yeah and actually actually that reminds me of um you know part of what you said uh in your initial remarks brian you, you mentioned this um I think it's a South African proverb that I'd, I'd heard maybe like 15 years ago. I think it's brilliant, but uh, nothing about us without us is for us. And uh, I think that's part of why it's so important that um, stakeholders are a, a wide range of stakeholders, frankly, are engaged in the design process, and um, you know, just ch- helping to figure out you know where the shortfalls are and, and how to um, actually um, you know meet everyone's needs. And and you know, to your point more recently um, you know, the, the hacks that, that folks have, have figured out because they've had to, um, you know, getting that in front of the, the owner and the designers um, pretty early on, I think would make um, a world of difference. So just wanted to underscore that.
3: There's a question in the chat uh, for the CRE professional responsible for creating the physical workspace in office. What changes can be made in existing spaces? Uh, consider for new spaces, is there a checklist rather than uh, think list to set a baseline? Um, we've certainly created a scorecard. I, I can share that um, with, with the audience uh, as well. We've, what we've done is we've looked at different components within our built environment from the entry point, uh, lobby reception, restrooms, cafes, etc. cetera. And there's a minimum standard we want to get to uh, um, c score, then a B, and then an A. But there, there are things that one can do. Uh, again, think about uh, the experience of people with different disabilities coming into your space. Uh, in a lobby, for example, um, what's your carpet look like? Um, uh, do you have carpet? Uh, if it's a high plush carpet, will that slow down and be an impediment to a wheelchair use? Um, how are you receiving uh, employees and guests and visitors? Do you have a a, a a reception desk that doesn't have a lower level, or is it um, and a wheelchair kind of can't come up and present itself uh, to to that? Again, the idea of the ramp, um, you know, this is the ramp. Uh, is the building accessible um, in the same way it is to everybody else? Or are you asking somebody to um, go around the back of the building um, or the side of the building and an, an alternative entry point? But even the furniture that goes in that, uh, the spaces. Um, Kim, Kimberly, you, you talked about that, you know, the, the, uh, the different sizes of, of people that we have to cater for. Well, get your furniture to cater for that. Don't have all high top tables, don't have all low tables. Uh, they might, ex- might uh, um, exclude somebody. Um, think about different furniture sizes. Don't have the same chair with a narrow armrest. Maybe somebody who's a little bit larger can't sit there. Think about the ability to get up off that chair. Some folks can uh, might be difficult to get in and out of the chair. Uh, you know, the, the Barcelona chair uh, is probably one of the most famous uh, design chairs that it's out there. Um, uh, you, you've got to be a gymnast to be able to get in and out of that chair uh, comfortably. So uh, think, think about things around uh, your office, uh, that um, wayfinding and signage. Are you, are you using the right font level so that people can see it? Is it lit well? Um is the contrast between the writing and the background um uh, uh the, the right level? Um are when you go into your coffee areas, are things labeled uh for people to find them? Um are you including Braille in that? So this, this there's so many things that we can do. Uh, within, uh, again, uh, the spaces and places. But I I do like to start with that discussion with our uh, ERGs, with people who have uh, a disability, because once you start listening and making corrections based on their experiences, um, two things happen. One, you remove the barriers that they have. And then two, the level of trust they have in you as a partner, uh, because you've delivered on on those, uh, credibility goes up.
4: And I think, you know, at a very high level, if you um, ask someone, do they feel like they belong? You know, if the answer is yes, I do feel like I belong, you've done your job. And so if, if someone can navigate your entire space and not feel like you forgot about this aspect of things, you know, that you know frankly just doesn't accommodate them, I think, um, you know, those are, those are the kinds of things to, to kind of imagine as you walk through or navigate a space, um, you know, how can people who have different needs than I do, Um, Experience this and and actually appreciate
1: it. I have a question for Brian. Um, My understanding is that um, Microsoft really actively embraces um, some folks who are neurodiverse in terms of, you know, it's almost like they've got special skills that can actually help understand Um, how to do certain applications and things and that um, those are actually highly recruitable skill sets or desirable skill sets. And so I'm curious if you can share on that or um, this is what I've heard. And I think that it's actually really wonderful. um, And it takes leaders to share their perspectives and um, to make the world that much more accessible for all
3: yeah, uh, Microsoft has a um, uh, an Autism at Work hiring program, and uh, what we found is in the past um, we've um, excluded that community from participating. Um, in, in getting be, in the workforce primarily because they haven't been able to get through the um, resume uh, screening and, and maybe then the job interviews because we were the problem. Um, and what we've done in that area is we've literally changed the way we interview folks on, on the spectrum. And uh, one, we asked, do you require an accommodation? Uh, again, is is that physical, is that uh, uh, virtual, and so on and so forth. Um, But we also train our managers who are going to do the interview process. It's quite uh, possible that a person um, who is on the spectrum may not respond to a question uh, in the same way somebody who is neurotypical will. Um, They certainly don't like, uh, in some instances, to make eye contact. Uh, So that might be off-putting for somebody who doesn't know. Um, They certainly don't like talking about what they did at the weekend, in some cases, and, and that that social interaction in, in the interview process can be, um, if you're again, not aware and, and you don't make an accommodation for that, um, it, you, they can come across as not the right candidate. So we, we do that training for our managers. We also do the training with the teams. And uh, if we feel a candidate is the right fit, they may get, before we make the hire, we give them an opportunity to get immersed with the team for a period of time uh, that's agreed. And, uh, and that helps. Um, so that's at the Microsoft level. At the um, corporate real estate level, we have, uh, as Chris mentioned, uh, our supported employment program. And what that is, is we hire individuals who are um, part of the intellectual and developmental community. So they have a learning disability. Um, they're folks who may not have gone on to get a third level degree uh, and may not be writing software, but they're a great um, Uh, person. uh, They're a great fit for some of the service jobs we have. So we've created uh, over 30 different service jobs, could be cafe, worker, landscaping, mailroom, reception, etc. And those individuals are coming in, um, they get paid the going rate for the work that they do, and they get support typically uh, externally through vocational rehab um, fund with the state, city or county, And uh, we partnered up with those external agencies to help place those individuals. And that has been a fantastic impact for us. Because that proximity to uh, people who are different gives us an awareness of uh, how different we all are. Uh, But more importantly, uh, it gives those individuals who, um, you know, when we think about diversity and inclusion, um, certainly within the disability community, individuals with intellectual developmental disabilities have been the ones that have been overlooked the most uh, in terms of employment. and. yeah, just giving meaningful work, uh, giving uh, getting paid the going rate allows them some independence. Yeah, thank
1: you. I, I mean, I think that then goes into you know really what we saw a lot of during the pandemic as well, which was all that we are, each of us is unique. And so while you know we may have different varying different needs in terms of accommodations and things. We um, we are not all the same. And I think we saw a lot of this with even some some of the mental um, illness awareness or needs that people have. And so I'm curious from both of your perspectives or anyone here in terms of, um, you know, learnings from the pandemic, what could then apply to when we're building out space and making it more from a universal design that much more. Um, Accessible for everyone, whether it's some people working in a hybrid, maybe they're, you know, this is given more opportunity for people working remotely um, and enhancing those um, accommodations in terms of technology uh, or any types of learnings around that. I think are really interesting because, you know, there's this period of time where everybody was working pretty much, much, you know, predominantly remotely. and was that a good or bad experience for people needing accommodations?
3: Kimberly, do you want to take that one, or
4: yeah? Um, well, actually, I'll let I'll let you answer. I'm still thinking about it. So uh, it's a it's a really good question.
3: Uh, yeah, I. I... I, I guess for us, you know, we, we've not really changed the direction in which we're headed. And uh, our, our space types evolve around teaming, uh, collaboration, um, but also acknowledging individual work gets done in the office. We certainly don't expect everybody to come back to the office. In fact, we've created more flexible policies at the company level. Um, to do that and, and our space is aligned with that. So if, if, if employees do get um, permission to work from home more than 50% of the time, we're not guaranteeing them a desk, uh, an allocated desk or office. So we'll see some more touchdown in those spaces. Uh, we are, we're definitely looking at the equitable uh, experience between being in the office um, and being remote. Uh, so the idea that uh, using video um, and enhanced video we're going to see more more of that uh, in the future but it again it comes back to awareness and training and certainly at Microsoft we're doing more of that uh, for managers we have a mantra of model coach care and uh, modeling best behavior so um, I am uh, gonna go on vacation this evening for Thanksgiving. I'm going to switch off my email. Um, My team knows that they're gonna be off some days next week. And I'm not going to be on email and I'm not gonna keep an eye on them because we wanna model best behavior um, uh, coaching. Uh, Again, the idea that we, we don't want to tell people what to do or how to do things in particular, we wanna coach them along and find their own path. And then finally, and more importantly, caring. Um, we, we go into, we've gotten into the habit now of um, spending a little bit of time in our one-to-ones um, that uh, Uh, checking in you know how are how are you no not how are you (laughs) I'm fine why you you look a little bit under the weather today and you know tell me about and uh, really caring about what's going on because I think it's amazing Uh, Connie uh, you know looking at your background there and you've invited us into your house um, today and and, uh, up until the pandemic we haven't seen that part of people before, um, where they live, how they live, you know, the kids and the dogs being around and all, all that type of stuff going on. And it's a real privilege to be able to see that type or that part of people's lives. Uh, and then as I say, you know, take care on those.
4: Yeah, and you know, I, I think that, um, well, design is, a, is an iterative process, right? And so when the pandemic started, um, none of us knew which way was up. Like, I mean, it was just, obviously it was a crazy time. It's still frankly is, but, you know, we've, we've kind of started to normalize it and, you know, um, at least within HOK, we are talking about, you know, kind of a, a hybrid schedule where a couple days we're remote and then uh, the balance of the week we're in the office. So that's kind of where, where we are at this point. But again, you know, we're uh, con- consistently reevaluating. That, but we're also trying to help our clients figure out what to do with their spaces and, you know, uh, where they want to contract, where they want to expand. And so I think that the pandemic has really, um, you know, obviously turned a lot of things upside down and turned it around. So to the point where, um, you know, I think that we're being really open and flexible, not only with ourselves, but also in helping our clients find the right solutions to uh, the kind of evolving challenges that we're seeing, um, you know, what, what whether it relates to you know, people working in the office or, or outside the office, but also um, you know, just the accommodations that we're making for people with different needs. So um, I think it's, it's kind of to be continued, but it, it really has um, prompted us to, to ask really critical questions like, do we need to, you know, to be in the office as, as much as we were pre-pandemic? The answer, frankly, is no. Um, I think our productivity has gone up in, in many ways being from home, but then also our work-life balance has gotten skewed because people wake up at like seven, start working immediately, no commute time, and then stop working at 10 p.m. And just kind of like, and so, you know, that, that's kind of a common story that we're hearing. Um, so from a company perspective, you know that's heightened productivity but you know individuals are feeling burnt out more often and also spending so much time in front of screens and you know the impact that has on your eyes in fact i just had an eye appointment this morning so my eyes are still a little dilated but um you know now you know i was prescribed like glass you know glasses to to help with like you know just dealing with so much computer time so um so basically i feel like i'm rambling at this point but the point is Things are changing, and and we have to to really rise to the occasion to meet the evolving challenges of um, not just the pandemic, but you know all the things that that we're seeing with heightened you know use of technology and um, you know a growing awareness of of the the differences that we bring to the workplace, whether it be gender, race, disability, um, you know cultural um, differences, etc. So. Uh, we're we're in a fast changing world, and we just have to be ready to uh, to handle anything that comes our way.
3: Yeah, I think Kimberly, you know what you said is, is spot on. It's it's uh, th- this idea of hybrid is not just about work; it's about life, which right. work is a part of, uh, and we have to certainly recognize that and be agile in in terms of working with it rather than against it. Yep, absolutely.
0: I also think that also returns us to the idea of the Platinum rule. It's not going to be a one size fits all. It depends on what the needs are of those individuals, the nature of the work. Uh, I 90% of my clientele are hedge funds. It's very difficult for them to do what they do without being able to directly communicate with each other and be in the same space. Because they need to communicate so working from home isn't necessarily going to work for them but it does for many other industries my girlfriend is a uh she manages two warehouses uh, one's in hong kong the other's in long island she's never been to either and she doesn't really need to so when they asked her to go back into work okay it's good to know who you're working with and see them on occasion but to actually manage the warehouse in and out, that's not something that she needs to be in an office to do. Yeah,
4: and actually one thing we haven't talked about is the great resignation. I think everyone is very aware of what's happening in the world of work where people are leaving jobs at record numbers in every industry. I mean, it's pretty, pretty crazy. Um, and so one way to differentiate your company, your space, is actually to create that sense of belonging so that those who might be on the fringes um, you know, if they're if they're visiting a Microsoft space, let's say it's a, they work for a competitor in Microsoft, they visit one of Brian's spaces. They're like, oh, they've thought of everything. I want to be here, and so that's part of the competitive advantage that I think that um, you know all of us want to to really uh, embrace as we as we try to recruit and retain the the best possible talent. Agreed. Chris, I don't
1: see any other questions. Um, I, I, say,
3: why.
1: Yeah. I mean, this has been really great. And I think that, you know, it's um, really, if there's one takeaway, it's, it's it, what Kimberly, what you, what you said in terms of nothing about us without us is for us. I love that. Well, um, Brian said it first, but I repeated it. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. And um, if there's a takeaway, boy, I think that's it, that, you know, try to, try to put yourself in someone else's situation um, or actually take that opportunity to do that. Um, I personally am a klutz. And so I've broken several bones in athletic activities and, um, you know, go take, go sit in a wheelchair, see what it's like. Um, go visit, go around your neighborhood in it. And there's an awareness of how people treat you. Um, They'll talk. I've had it where they are talking to my husband and I'm like, hello, I'm here. Um, So, you know, those are things that um, anyone, again, who's broken a bone or something, you start to get a little glimpse into what that is. The reality is usually your bone heals and you get to move on. But, um, and, you know, for those, we've seen a lot this year with, again, with mental health, that I think we are a world of people who think differently. And some are um, extroverts, some are introverts, some things just overwhelm people, that if we can all just give some people some breathing room and help to understand that world, it would go an awful long way to making, making our spaces better and making our relationships better. Yeah, it's all about
3: this, about listening, um, and uh, listening to the listening and learning, and I do think as an industry, as a corporate real estate industry, um, it, we've got some diversity there finally, uh, but you know, they, there's a lot of people in our industry that look like Chris and I, um, who are in positions of influence, and uh, but I think we can all be allies. Um, you know, we can all listen. Use that position uh, of influence and power that we have uh, to, quite frankly, just make our places and spaces be better.
2: To echo uh, uh, Connie, to echo Connie's um, comment about sit in a wheelchair. When I was pregnant with my twins, for whatever reason the doctors couldn't figure it out. I, could, I couldn't walk, and so I spent, you know. Six months in a wheelchair, and uh, I was shocked. At, even though we we, it's an ADA law. It's a federal law. to have ADA, and the curb cuts, a lot of them don't work, or they weren't put in, or they're they're not uh, installed correctly, or whatever, um, it, you know. And even in the best health hospitals in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. Um, They didn't have a way to get me from my wheelchair up on the exam table. Even during when it was time to give birth, they were like, how are you going to get on the table? And I'm like, really? So, I mean, it's amazing how much is not there. At least 15 years ago when I had my twins, maybe things are better now. Um, but, um, Brian, I have a question for you. I was a few minutes late, so maybe I missed it. But I feel like I heard this news piece like a couple of weeks ago where it said over 50% of our population has some sort of ADHD or ADD or neurodiversity. And I mean, is that statistic correct? I mean, is there like over 50% of the population has some unique type of different? Mean-
3: I don't know that I've heard that stat. Uh, you know, the one that, that I go back to uh, kind of across the disability spectrum is one in seven, uh, 1.3 billion people on the planet. And uh, I, I, the other stat I, I, I would uh, quote is uh, over 70% of disabilities are invisible. So uh, again, they, that means they might be neuro, uh, uh, might be somebody who's deaf or hard of hearing, uh, Etc. Uh, so you you don't always know when you meet somebody what's you know what what what's under the surface. Um, so we, we, we shouldn't assume. You know we should be making sure we're open and, and again listening.
4: Yeah. Well, according to the um, to the study that, that HOK published, and you may have missed it, so I'm going to put it back in the chat in case you didn't see it earlier. Uh, Fifteen to twenty percent of the um, of the population is is neurodivergent at this point.
3: Uh, okay. that sounds more, yeah, that sounds more like it. Okay. It's quite possible, Lizzie, that something like 50% of the population currently is dealing with um, uh, stress and um, well-being and so on.
1: I yeah, know. and I think, I, I think another thing that changed is that um, you probably have a, there's probably about 20 20 years of students who were in the educational system were accommodated via 504 or some other means. They go to college and for the most part, most colleges do have some kind of, well, they have some, it depends on the school. That's really important to check um, in terms of accommodation. And then when they come into the working world, those accommodations, like, what does that mean? And, you know, again, the ADA is a civil rights law. So it's, it's a big deal. Um, but it, it it is not one size fits all by any means, because it's unique to the individual's needs. And so that's what, you know, from my experience, where I saw a huge um, uh, need, in terms of people needing accommodations, and not knowing how to ask for them. And in, in terms of, you know, just trying to help those people. And Brian, to your point, many times they were not expensive. It might've been someone being able to sit in a, um, not in a cross path, you know, and so that they didn't get distracted all the time. Um, Or they might've needed a different kind of technology just to accommodate, or maybe they needed some heads down space, which that's the beauty of when you have space with choice that you then can give people choice to do their best work, however they do it.
3: Um, and they it... don't necessarily have to ask for permission to go through those spaces as well when they're available. Right. Um, yeah, it, the, the accommodations piece is, is really interesting. Um, again, in the hiring process, uh, managers can be put off hiring people who are different uh, on the expectation that there might be an accommodation required and that expectation that it might be expensive and it comes out of their budget and so on and so forth. Um, I, the, the average cost of an, a, an accommodation in the US is less than $500 per year uh, for a person who's, who requires that accommodation. So overall, it's not a huge deal. And and again, it could be things as simple as, I need extra time, I just need a, a longer break during the day uh, to rest to recover and so on, um, until we listen. <laughs> we don't know.
1: Yeah, and that's where, like, even like sit stands. I mean, they're great yeah. for everyone. Yeah, they're great, Chris. They're great for everyone because you know you can just accommodate yeah. very easily. Um, Question.
0: And it's also yeah. one of the things with the sit stand that ninety percent of what I manufacture these days is head adjustable, and I use it not to stand up often but it's really nice that I can adjust it for myself and to get my laptop at the right angle so I look the most attractive as possible uh, on Zoom calls. Um, And again, it's very versatile, but also the controller choice. Uh, Connie and I have talked about it too, where um, I'm trying to standardize my company on using a paddle control that would allow people with limited dexterity to just uh, drop down like a lever door handle or push up and not have to use their fingers to actually manipulate the controller. The cost difference between the push button versus the paddle is nothing. It's a couple of cents. Uh, so again, that's something that's that- That's right there, changes.
2: flexibility. Exactly. Are we seeing these things taught in design schools? Like when I went as, was I, when I was in architecture school, I don't recall the design studio teachers asking me, "Well, how are uh, people with disabilities going to ac- a- access the space?" Or you know, not, none of that. And is, do you, Kim, do you see that in um, in design schools that it's more of a thing? you know, I I do think it's
4: more of a thing now, even when I was in school, like 20 years ago, um, you know, we we were encouraged to think about the user experience, but it wasn't explicitly stated, you know, for people with disability. And I think that, you know, once, once I got into the profession and, you know, had that experience working, you know, on that project for deaf students and actually taking the licensure exams and having to think about all the ADA rules, I think that's where, um, you know, that that education, that that secondary part of education came through. But I, I think, today's students, I suspect they probably are exposed to a little bit more of that earlier on, but uh, I can't say
1: for sure. I was lucky when I was in school, we were part of the, uh, at Syracuse, there's the Benjamin Blatt Institute, which is, um, he was a big advocate. He brought people out of institutions and um, helped to get children into the classroom. And so, um, and the institutions were shut down. So there was an awareness in our program was tied to industrial design. So it was very much about anthropometrics um, and user application. So I guess it depends, but for if anyone knows any students in that field, I would, I would highly suggest that they should be, um, you know, taking more Courses in that, and I think just as there's an aw- more of an awareness on sustainability and circularity, that I would assume that there is um, more awareness in terms of, um, you know, neurocognitive abilities and just in in general that I think they're growing up in a period where they're seeing the application. So I'm optimistic.
3: I've also put our uh, accessibility scorecard in the chat. So please feel free to take that, download it, use it, give us feedback.
4: Brian?
0: That's great. I just say that. Thank you so much, Brian. That's great. And um, I've saved the links as well. I'm happy to follow up with anyone, share the links. I know sometimes you exit a zoom call and you forgot to take everything with you um so you guys anyone that needs it um it might come out from the berman group i'll coordinate with our committee there and see what we can do about providing these resources i know that everyone here uh, is discussing this because we're all open to conversations and i'm uh, sure brian and Kimberly, if uh, someone wanted to reach out to you, uh, would you like me to put you in touch with them? Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay with it? Uh,
3: yeah, I'll connect on LinkedIn.
4: Yes, definitely. Sure. LinkedIn is probably easiest. So feel free to connect for those who I'm not already connected to.
0: And um, I know that, Connie, uh, your group with Connecticut and Westchester is looking to start some programming too. If anyone on the call is involved in that chapter and would like to reach out, uh, please reach out to Connie. And Sam goes from New Jersey, Liz Archer, excited to get the ball rolling for 2022. And of course the New York City chapter, which I speak on behalf of right now since Cass is still gonna sort through. So please reach out to us. I have this cool new little tool that, if you'd like, you can text my initials CJA to 88500. I'm putting it in the chat right now, and you'll be able to uh, receive my information and reach out and have any sort of discussions. But at this point, without any other questions left in the chat, I think. Kim, Brian, Connie, Liz, and I could probably continue this discussion um, all day and have it really be great. But I also want to conserve people's time. It's uh, Brian's about to go on vacation, so I'm sure he has some
3: things he needs. To- Unfortunately, I'm three hours behind you guys, so <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it.
0: With that, I really do appreciate everybody coming here today, and uh, this was fantastic. I hope everyone pulled uh, at least a nugget or two out of it. I know I definitely. uh, I'm just so happy with the discussion that we're able to have. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
4: Great to be here. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.